Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here's my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we watched the horror classic Rosemary's Baby, directed by Roman Polanski and adapted from the novel by Ira Levin. The film stars Mia Farrow and John Cassavetes as Rosemary and Guy Woodhouse, a young couple who move into a new apartment in Manhattan. After they start getting to know their overly friendly older neighbors, strange things start happening, especially once Rosemary gets pregnant. So this was a Patreon request from Asante and... Thank you so much to Asante for requesting this. This is a movie that we have both seen before, but I hadn't seen that since I was 20 years old, like basically 12 years. And I did not remember it very well at all, except for some sort of key moments. And I had like an amazing experience rewatching the movie because when I first saw it, I like didn't know anything about like the history of Hollywood. (laughs) And we were texting about this and like neither of us knew who John Cassavetes was when we saw the movie the first time. So with that information, it's such a different experience seeing the It's movie. like doubly strange. Yeah. <laughs> and also like doubly mixed experience because obviously this is a Roman Polanski film. Just to like preface the episode, obviously we understand people don't want to watch a Roman Polanski movie. We kind of went ahead with this episode because this film is both like genuinely iconic and also an extraordinary film and also just like so influential on horror cinema in general. So like there's this complicated situation where we all know that Roman Polanski is one of Hollywood's most notorious rapists. Like he has had this really disturbing history and at the same time has made these genuinely great movies. You know, this movie is also really important from a feminist perspective. It's like a really fascinating movie and incredibly effective piece of storytelling about medical gaslighting and women being abused by men. And that just makes it like all the more complicated to talk about in the real world context. Yeah, and I think that everyone has different subjective approaches to how to deal with the question of like art that was created in whole or in part by really monstrous people, often men, it's usually men who we're we're talking about in this context. But um, I think the history of cinema is obviously rife with this, though Polanski is an extreme case because what he did was so awful and there's public knowledge about it, whereas there's a lot of stories one can imagine that we don't know about or like there's sort of gossip about certain stuff happening in old Hollywood but it's not substantiated but the more you read about the history of Hollywood the more you realize that abuse and mistreatment of women was so part and parcel of that system from its inception that if you were like, well, we're just not going to talk about things that were made by bad men, you would basically have nothing left. So my perspective on it is more about like, how do you proceed sort of holding both things in your head a bit and understanding that people who can be really monstrous in real life can create incredible works of art. I mean, One person I was thinking of a lot while watching this, because as you said, it is this incredible feminist work of art, which is so sort of mind-bending to think about in the context of who made it, was Alfred Hitchcock, whose sort of great theme as an artist is blonde women in these difficult situations with overbearing men. 
And he himself was an overbearing man who would, like, torment his actresses on many films. Tippi Hedren, of course, is the most extreme example. Like, he absolutely tortured that woman in a way that is horrific. And I think when you get more distance from a an artist and when that person is dead, it becomes a lot easier to be like, well... This guy was really fucked up and bad, but you can still love his work. And when the person is alive, it's a lot more complicated. Yeah. And I mean, from a practical perspective, when you're kind of discussing a film like this, it's part of the cinematic canon that's had this kind of huge artistic impact. But like, that's kind of a different conversation from when we're talking about stuff that's happening today. Like, for example, the idea of people who are supporting Roman Polanski or Woody Allen today is like, what the fuck are you doing? Or people who are kind of trying to protect and shield abusers in Hollywood who are like active in the industry is like kind of a different conversation and is like having a real life impact on people who are currently trying to move forward with their careers, you know? Yeah, I mean, I love a lot of Polanski's work, which is obviously like a strange position to be in, but I think he is an incredible director. And up to the Ghostwriter, which Ewan McGregor starred in, which is like 10, 15 years ago. I, you know, his, his more recent stuff I'm not interested in and everyone says it's terrible. But you can't erase something like Rosemary's Baby because, as you say, it's so influential and we'll talk about that influence. It's also just great and like simultaneously really horrifying and pleasurable to watch, I think. And when I was watching this, I did think occasionally about Polanski's real life issues, but I mostly was just really wrapped up in the movie. And I sometimes feel like when you have a great work of art made by someone like this, my instinctive reaction is almost like, you being a horrible person, you don't get to take this away from me just because you're a piece of shit, you know? Like, And that's kind of how I feel about this like even though he did write and direct it it was an adaptation and it sounds like it's a very close adaptation from the novel like a ton of the dialogue is taken straight from the book once the movie's out there it exists independently of anybody right and everyone who has seen it since has their own relationship with it including so many filmmakers who love it obviously the same is true of chinatown which is his other most famous film which had such a i mean you can't you can't get rid of these films and unlike Woody Allen's movies, which I mostly hate, I think that they're really good. So um, I'm happy to talk about this one. We're not going to linger too much on Polanski after having done this torturous prologue to this episode. So why don't we talk a bit about the how the movie got put together? Yeah. So it's based on a book by Ira Levin, who... I'd be really interested to learn a bit more about actually because he also wrote The Stepford Wives which is was made into a really famous film which I've not actually seen but The Stepford Wives is like absolutely a feminist book. <laughs> the basic premise I think is familiar to everyone. It's about this woman and her husband who moved to this suburban neighbourhood and they kind of discover or she discovers that um, all of these perfect mid-20th century wives are you know, brainwashed robots that have been created by their husbands to be like the perfect, submissive, sexy wives. And I'm not sure how much of that kind of made its way into the film, but like in the book, she is like this kind of explicitly quite modern 1970s feminist woman. And like watching this movie, that kind of very 
direct attitude towards this period of feminism is like very apparent because the main character in this movie is also very much a housewife like she's in New York so you know different from being in the suburbs she is the wife of an up-and-coming stage and screen actor but she is a person who is kind of her life is being the partner to this man like she doesn't have a career and she is this very feminine figure but at the same time like you see the way that she you know uses her intelligence and observational skills to figure out what's like fucked up in her life yeah and um so he wrote this novel rosemary's baby and sold the adaptation rights to the studio before it was even published which i thought was a really interesting fact because i totally think of that as like a more current hollywood thing but obviously they were doing it in the 60s as I well i think that was happening that was happening a lot in like the early days of hollywood when they were making sort of the start of like tv serials and stuff because they were just so desperate for ip they would just like buy everything so yeah. clearly they'd already kind of figured out this guy had a cinematic brain yeah and <laughs> the deal that he got for this book unbelievable so the afi has like a page for this movie with a lot of information about it because it's on i assume it's on one of their lists and I'm just going to read information from that page, which is the purchase price was said to be $100,000 with escalation to $150,000 via an extra dollar for every hardcover copy sold over $35,000. And he was entitled to 20% of the producer's profit share, no less than 10% of the picture's net profits, which is a- I would love that deal. (laughs) Oh my God. That is an unbelievable deal. That is so much money. No one would get that deal now. No person. Not the most famous writer in America. So congratulations to Ira Levin, who uh, I assume got extremely wealthy (laughs) off of Rosemary's Baby. (laughs) So the deal's in the works for like a year. Truffaut at some point claimed that Hitchcock was asked to direct and turned it down, although I don't think there's any documentation of that. It would make sense as a Hitchcock movie, though, so that's perfectly believable. Um, And then Polanski comes on around a year after the deal is first announced. He wants to cast Sharon Tate, who he's with her at that time, and Warren Beatty, but neither of those happen, of course, and the studio wants Pharaoh, and then Polanski suggests Cassavetes. Neither of them were, like, mega famous at this time which i think was a concern but obviously it wound up working the movie was hugely successful and the production there are just like so many little anecdotes from this production that are like it's a lot there was a lot happening i mean the thing that sticks out to me the most is frank sinatra being like i'm divorcing you because you dare to have a career and I'm sending you the papers in the middle of the shoot while you're working to Mia Farrow. Which, like, what? Oh my god. Also, just for context here, Mia Farrow was 23 when this film came out. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, having already been married to him <laughs> at the age of 23, it's a lot. And she talks about him now with, like, nothing but affection. Famous people are just mysterious. I mean, Ronan Farrow was born in 1987. Yes, and no comment from us on that, (laughs) but you can imagine what we're thinking. So, I mean, it seems like it was mostly a pretty smooth shoot. It went over, but the actors all praised Polanski a lot in terms of just like managing everything. The one thing I saw about sort of friction was that Polanski and Cassavetes kept getting into arguments 
which I thought was really interesting, not in terms of like anything personal, but just like Polanski was had a very formalist approach where everything was very precise and Cassavetes was not like that. And also Cassavetes was, you know, obviously a director and an actor at the same time, which kind of puts you in a slightly different position to people who are just actors. Yes. So yeah, he had a very like loose style and it winds up totally working in the movie, but you can imagine that it was potentially causing some friction at the time. And then... There's a famous shot of her while, you know, fake pregnant crossing, it's Parker Fifth Avenue, I can't remember. And they just walked out into traffic without any plan. And I believe I read in an interview with her that she was like, well, I, I was really hesitant about that. But, you know, Roman was like, came with me with the camera and correctly predicted that no car would run over a pregnant woman. What was ha- like? Like, Hollywood back in the day, they're all like, all right, well, let's just run into traffic. Let's go for it. Like, I just, (laughs) oh my god. So, all a bit chaotic, but it, you know, turned out well. And again, the movie was very successful. But um, this is a case where, you know, obviously, again, we don't want to linger too much on the behind the scenes stuff for obvious reasons. But there's just so much to talk about with the text of the film in this case that I think we could move along to that so do you want to give a bit more of a plot summary of like what actually is happening here yeah so the protagonists are rosemary and guy woodhouse who are a young couple although obviously the age gap between the actors like mia farrow's early 20s john cassavetes is mid to late 30s he is a actor who is working in new york and like he's clearly got enough of a career that they're financially solvent but he would like to be more successful and she is a homemaker they're hoping to have kids together and the opening of the film is them finding their new apartment in new york which is this lovely fully furnished uh very eccentric bohemian apartment in a block which has various other people still living there mostly elderly people with interesting stories which kind of provides the blueprint for a lot of other horror media that I've seen since then like just one of the many things that's really influential here but when they settle in there's sort of already some foreshadowing about like weirdness in this house like they have this older friend who mentions like oh doesn't this building have a weird history but they'd also meet the two most important other characters in the film which are Minnie and Stephen Castavet who are an elderly couple who are extreme busybodies and are like constantly pushing their way into the Woodhouse couple's business And once Rosemary becomes pregnant, they just become like a constant presence in their lives. Minnie is always giving her these like vitamin supplements and they're like making her go to the doctor they recommend and so forth. Um, Should we just like be straightforward about what this film's about, Morgan? Yeah, I think everyone knows. I think it's safe to say this isn't a spoiler. Yeah, this is one of many films um, from this period, which is just straight up Satanism. Rosemary has been impregnated with Satan's baby. And the narrative of the film is very much not a supernatural narrative. It plays out like a straightforward psychological drama. It's extremely focused on gaslighting, particularly with her husband, but also with these neighbours. But the husband, in order to find more success in his career as an actor, has joined up with all of these people in order to use Rosemary as just like the device to give birth to the son of Satan. And she is just like this innocent young woman who is trapped in this like deeply bizarre situation and gradually has to like figure out 
that she is just being like manipulated by everyone around her and it's just an incredibly well executed and very entertaining but like in a dark way narrative i think there are kind of two major elements of the feminist critique going on in the movie and one of them has to do with marriage and the other one has to do with the medical establishment they obviously overlap because the problem in both cases is just no one taking this woman seriously and in this particular case because it's a movie where you can get impregnated by the devil which does not happen in real life they literally are lying to her face and there is a conspiracy going on as opposed to most instances of this kind of gaslighting situation in real life where it's way more banal or kind of accidental. I mean, maybe you have a wife who's like lying to his husband about cheating on her, but I think more often, especially with doctors, they're not like literally lying to you about like a test result or something, right? It's more that like the whole system is just kind of fucked up. But I think both tracks of the movie are kind of running in parallel in terms of this woman having no place to go to get help. And she's really, really super isolated socially. So she doesn't like there's one scene where she has a party for their young friends who are not these this older couple next door and there are a bunch of other women who like come and talk to her and they immediately are like this is fucked up and bad like you should not be doing any of this but she's not around them all the time she mostly is just spending time with her husband because her entire identity revolves around pleasing her husband and also just the arc of the way that she becomes isolated like that is a really good sort of slow burn boiling the frog situation because right when they first move in they seem really normal and like there are some sort of subtle implications that they do just have like a regular social circle of people in their 20s and 30s but because she's so kind of wrapped up in building this home and then getting pregnant like that keeps her too busy to keep in touch with her friends which is like something that happens to a lot of people just normally when they're not pregnant with Satan's baby. And then by the time it gets to the point where she's like essentially snapped and she's like, I have to have this party to get back in touch with people. It becomes this sort of one-off event. So they no longer feel like they're embedded in her life. So like they're not kind of following up on what even they recognize is she's in this really fucked up situation because she's complaining like, oh, I've been like in pain for months through my pregnancy. And immediately all of her friends like physically shut her in a room away from her husband and are like, what the hell? You need to find a new doctor. And of course her husband has far more influence on her because they live together and he has control over her finances. But like another thing that is just like really key to this is just Mia Farrow's performance style and appearance because she's obviously like this very petite kind of gamine 1960s style. Like she's wearing all these baby doll dresses. Like she looks very youthful and extremely slim and small. And also just like her persona in this film is very girlish and fun. And she's just like this wife who really wants to support her husband. And like, obviously she does like her have her independence and stuff. Like you see her doing things like, you know, when he's trying to pressure her into eating this dessert, which is, of course, secretly drugged. You know, you see her sort of throwing it in the bin secretly and that sort of thing. But at first, she's just happy in the role that she has. Like, she is happy to be this lovely feminine woman who is kind of secondary to her husband. And, like, part of her growth is trying to rebel against that, but not necessarily having the tools to do so. And she has to be, like, forced into a point of extremity to do that. Yeah, I mean, there's a scene where she goes and visits 
this older man who was their landlord at the previous building, which they never show yeah, from Hutch. the Yeah, they never show from the outside, but you imagine it's like a small place since they're actually friends with him and he's like a normal guy. And he's the only other person who is like an outside line to like sanity in the real world in this situation. And there's a really, I mean, there she visits him a few times, but in the scene I'm thinking of, she's talking about her husband, who's amazingly named Guy, <laughs> just a stand-in for all men. And she kind of just says that, like, he's really busy with his job and he's got this new part. And of course, that's going to make him really busy, but he's just thinking a lot about himself. And she kind of repeats it a couple times. And she won't just come out and say, like, he's acting like an asshole or he's acting really weird. But you can see that she resents that he's being so self-absorbed. And senses that there's something off about his behavior in another way, which we, of course, as the audience know, is that he's in cahoots with these (laughs) bad people. She can't fully articulate it, right? And so there's this gap between what we sense she can perceive and what she's willing to sort of acknowledge consciously or verbally because her conception of herself is as this very traditional wife figure. And yeah. I yeah. would also add, like, with this older friend who's their former landlord, like, we kind of said a moment ago that she has this, like, social circle of female friends that are helpful towards her. I think Hutch, played by Maurice Evans, is definitely a queer-coded character. I think Maurice Evans was a queer actor from this period. He was also in the TV show Bewitched. So that kind of seems relevant, even though, like, obviously he's not kind of saying that in this film. He is, like, outside of this restrictive heterosexual marriage situation. Yeah, and I mean, he's a man who she's talking to about her marital problems, right? And there's no... Yeah. I mean, obviously he's older, and, like, there's no sense of... Yeah, I mean, he's kind of a paternal figure, but he's also definitely also the gay friend. Yeah. I mean, the fact that he was a regular on Bewitched, I read in some article and I was really intrigued by that both by the thought that Bewitched was a regular like a big show at this time because it's like the flip side of this obsession with the occult right it's like the cutesy version but audiences would definitely have recognized him and seen it as kind of like joke casting you know he seems friendly to the audience too right because he's a sitcom character so there are ways that that kind of casting can be done in a like counterintuitive way which we've talked about in terms of other movies where like someone who seems friendly and charming because of their association with another work is cast as a villain and in this case it's doing the other thing right where oh we know and like him because we see him on tv every week and He's in a sitcom. I don't know what his role is in Bewitched. Maybe he plays like a horrible guy. I think he's the dad. Because like the dad and the uncle were both played by classic Hollywood gay actors. Yeah. We love some Bewitched. (laughs) I mean, there were a lot of classic Hollywood people in the movie. Polanski wanted that, but didn't know them. Like he wasn't for super And also because like the bulk of the cast are people who are in their like 60s or 70s. Yeah. And this story is, like, he didn't know those people by name necessarily. And so it was just like, go find me, people. But, like, her doctor is played by Ralph Bellamy, who is, like, the other man in His Girl Friday and several other movies. Um, I didn't know it was him because he's much older than this, obviously. And then when I looked at the cast list, I was like, oh, my God, (laughs) it's Ralph Bellamy. Yeah, it's like I Google him and I'm like, oh, when you remove the beard, I've seen him in, like, five movies from 1938. (laughs) Yeah. So that sense of like 
not major names, but sort of recognizable-ish people. They're kind of all over the movie. And Ruth Gordon, who plays Minnie Castavet, the neighbor, is also the female lead in Harold and Maude, which is perhaps where more people will have seen her now. But she was a very acclaimed playwright and screenwriter, along with her husband, Garson Kanan. They, I believe, wrote Born Yesterday. I know they wrote Adam's Rib. They've worked with George Cukor on a lot of stuff. And then she also is a stage actor and didn't really do much film work. And then, like, when she was this age, was just like, I'm going to win an Oscar for acting. <laughs> Amazing. And for, like, a really fun role as well. Yeah. Sydney <laughs> Blackmore plays the husband of that couple. I think they're both very good, but Ruth Gordon, like, there's a reason that she is the one who won the Oscar. She is so fantastic. I mean, it's a fantastic role because, like, the actual character, like, independent of the story at hand, is practically a sitcom character. Like, she's this overbearing grandmother with this strong accent who's got this really, like, florid fashion makeup style and is just, like, pissing off the main character because she's always just coming in and invading her space and being like, oh, you've got to come round. Like, you've got to take this supplement I'm giving. But, of course, that just becomes, like, so much more menacing in the context of the story where, like, everything she's doing is just, like, controlling this girl's life. Well, and... It's all about tone, right? Because if she were on a sitcom and the tone were sort of tilted like five degrees one way or the other, that character could be really fun. And I mean, it's fun to watch her in this for sure, but she is obnoxious. Like she is absolutely like- And her body language, like she's always like in her face. (laughs) She literally pushes her way into these people's apartment and is like, poking her head into all the rooms and is asking about the furniture and how much it costs, which Mia Farrow is just like appalled at this question. And if this woman were your neighbor, oh my God, I cannot imagine. It's a nightmare. And I think the movie's willingness to have her be like genuinely unpleasant. Unpleasant, but not to the degree where you're like, this woman's going to kill me and I can never let her into my house again, right? Because... This also lines up with the way we've been describing Rosemary, right? Which is this very, like, traditional wife. She's trying to please everyone. Like, she doesn't want to create conflict with anybody, but certainly not with this woman who's her neighbor. She feels kind of bad for her originally. The inciting incident of the movie is that the two of them have taken this young woman who was had drug problems and was doing some sex work in off the street, and Rosemary meets her in the laundry room, and they hit it off, and then... Shortly thereafter, this woman jumps out the window and the implication is that she was kind of like Rosemary 1.0 in terms of the devil impregnation. So Rosemary thinks that this couple is like completely crushed that this young woman they'd kind of adopted has jumped out the window and died by suicide. And um, she feels bad for them and is like, okay, I guess we can kind of go to dinner at their apartment. We're only going to do it once. And then kind of can't get rid of them. And because she doesn't want to bother anyone or create trouble, she just goes along, right? And that's the her problem in the whole movie, right? Is that she just is like, okay, well, I'll just agree. While people are sort of imposing themselves on her in different ways. And it's mostly men who are being 
horrible, but I like that there's one female character who's just like, yeah, she sucks. Like, she's really awful. And that the sort of feeling of obligation, which, like, I totally understand that feeling of, like, not wanting to create trouble, not wanting to make anybody upset. My life is so different in terms of, like, what I value and prioritize in terms of what I, like, want out of life. But that sense of just, like, not wanting to create waves or stir the boat, like, I, like that's such a thing that's socialized into women, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it's such a key staple of psychological horror movies where you're in this position as an audience member where you're yelling at a character to get out of a freaky situation. But the thing that's preventing them from doing so is just like the social awkwardness. You know, it's like if other people are just like have the confidence and social power to act like a bunch of freaks, it takes real willpower (laughs) to be like, I'm out of here, which is why the movie Get Out is literally called Get Out. You know? (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, that's a great comparison, obviously, because it's also all about this sense of just, like, I just don't want to cause a problem. And, like, Jordan Peele obviously, like, referenced this movie when talking about influences on that film. But I think what's so particularly successful about this movie is that there's nothing, like, they're not in a weird situation or in an isolated location or whatever insert they're literally in like a fun bohemian apartment in new york city yes and it's just their normal lives right she's in an abusive marriage right so like how is she supposed to do anything about that because everybody around her is just continuing to enforce the idea that all of this is fine when clearly it's not And as the movie goes on, she starts to kind of realize that, you know, her situation is is not okay. So do we want to talk more about the marriage first or the medical stuff first? Which floats your boat? Let's talk about the marriage. Okay. So obviously a huge part of her problem, as I was just alluding to with my comment about how this is an abusive marriage... Is that, like, if they had a great marriage and they had these horrible neighbors who were acting like creeps, it would be way easier for them to be like, A, just never come to our apartment, or if it's bad enough, like, we're gonna move, right? But that's not the situation. Yeah. And the arc of how that happens is really well articulated in this film, because, like, in the first section, when they're first moving into their apartment, you do see her husband, John Cassavetti's character, being sort of jokey... And maybe a little mocking, but it just feels like they have like a casual, fun relationship, right? And then like slowly you realize that that mockery just gets more unpleasant and more controlling. And then by the time you reach the final act, he is being just like actively incredibly unpleasant and cruel to her and just like insulting her and trying to control everything she does. And you can see like how she ended up in that situation and you just hate him so much. Like he is truly the worst and it's just so transparent that he is extremely self-absorbed like he doesn't care about her really he doesn't care about her physical well-being or her mental well-being because of course like he's just using her as a tool and all he cares about is his career as an actor and then like in the second half there's just more and more scenes where he's just like watching the tv and clearly like waiting for like a commercial that he's starting to come on in between other stuff (laughs) they have an amazing tv setup where like it's not they have a couch in their apartment but it's not like you never see them watching tv from the couch there's like a little folding stool 
right in front but of the like television. he's like staring at the TV, like a foot away from the TV. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, watching this, I was like, this man is the worst husband in a movie I have ever seen. Like, <laughs> he literally allows this fucking coven to have the devil come rape his wife and impregnate her. That's pretty bad. And also just treats her like shit on a day-to-day basis all the time. So you've got, on the one hand, like, extreme physical violation that he's lying to her about. And on the other hand, this, like, really granular depiction of how someone can sort of pick away at somebody's sense of self-confidence and self-worth just in the smallest of interactions. Yeah. And like he is completely belittling her and destroying her self-esteem, but also the pregnancy makes her very physically sick. Like Mia Farrow was already extremely thin in this film and they put her in a bunch of makeup to make her look thinner and also really pale because there's this sequence where kind of all her friends and acquaintances are remarking on how ill she looks after she gets pregnant. And this means that like her husband is just living with her day in and day out. And it's like, this is fine. I'm fine paying this price for my own success of watching this woman be in constant physical torment, which let's just say not the most sophisticated of allegories, fairly straightforward on what that point is meant to mean. <laughs> yes. And he also like blinds another actor or like, you know, has this coven like blind this other actor yeah. so that he can steal his role. An off-screen cameo from Tony Curtis on the yes. phone. I knew I recognized the voice, but I couldn't figure it out while I was watching and then saw after. Um, doing a lot with just like a few lines of dialogue just delivered through a phone, I think. But I think what makes that character, meaning Cassavetes, so disturbing is that there's nothing particularly overt monstrous about him right yes exactly because i think the mistake that a lot of movies about abusive relationships particularly movies about abusive relationships by men is that they will have like this like super monster who's just this like violent psychopath as the husband and it's like obviously there are like abusive partners who are an unfeasibly like violent monster person but most of the time, the reason like that relationship gets the point of like literally being married is because it's this slow burn of just like breaking someone down emotionally and mentally. And that's what's happening here. He is someone who is just completely socially acceptable to his entire social circle. And if anything, doesn't really even have red flags to people who are not literally living with him. No, like he's, this is why the casting is so genius because I think the performance is great, but there's nothing transformative about it, right? Like, he's playing a John Cassavetes I mean, you're getting John Cassavetes. Yeah. We also have another John Cassavetes episode. Listen to episode 203, Opening Night, which is one of his films. Uh, And we talked about Mikey and Nikki, which I actually was thinking about more watching this because he's more in that as an actor. Yeah. Those are the only major performances that I've seen that I can remember. Like, maybe I saw him in stuff like this uh, You've not seen the pilot episode of Columbo starring him as the conductor of the LA Symphony Orchestra. Very fun John Cassavetes (laughs) performance. (laughs) Directed by Steven Spielberg. I have never seen it. I I, I know I need to. But, like, those three guys are all kind of operating on a continuum of John Cassavetes' niche. 
And in Mikey and Nikki, he's playing like full on paranoid, losing it. But there's still like charm there, right? Yeah. I mean, I would say like the gradation of Cassavetti's performance is like a guy with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and you're like, he's hot. And then a guy who's got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and you're like, oh, Jesus Christ, get out. (laughs) (laughs) That's like the two ends of the spectrum. And in this, he's playing a way more like normie character than in either opening night or in Mikey and Nikki. In opening night, he's playing... He's for real playing an actor, and actors are weird. And obviously, Mikey and Nikki's bet gangsters. I mean, in this, he's slightly pathetic. Like, he's not pathetic pathetic, but, like, the things that he desires are very transparent. His desire for fame and fortune is, like, immediately picked up upon by his satanic neighbours within, like, ten minutes of meeting him. And he's, like, a likeable guy, but he's not magnetically charismatic, you know? Well, right. He reminds me of someone you'd like see at a movie who's like just come from a tennis club like he just feels like he (laughs) should be wearing tennis whites at some point in this film i mean obviously he's pathetic he literally sells out his wife to the devil in this movie like it's pretty sad but the level of charisma is kind of tamped down like he's still charismatic but he's not full-on but you get why someone would be attracted to him for sure, want to marry him, and why, like, other people would think he's just, like, you know, a nice guy. Especially if she's 23 and he's, like, 38 or whatever. Totally. But then as the movie progresses, there's something about him that's kind of off. But it's not off in, like, a, again, like, ghoulish way. He just, because, like, I don't think this guy is thinking about it that much. I think yeah. he's just is like he's really he's really not. He, he did has this no, thing. Well, that's yeah, that's like precisely how it works. It's like people who just yeah. like have not interrogated the concept of privilege or abuse. They're just like, well, I mean, you know, gonna do this, and then they like fucking skate on by after sacrificing your wife to the devil, and he's just like not that bright. Yeah, that's exactly it, and that's part, kind of what impresses me so much about the performance because we know that John Cassavetes was very intelligent. And even in something like Mikey and Nikki, where like those guys are not smart, but they're smart, if you know what I mean. <laughs> like they're exuding so much like charisma and sort of like verbal wit in a way, even if they're playing fucking idiots. And in this, it's just like he's just kind of a boring yeah. dummy. I mean, know? it definitely fits in with sort of the mid 20th century husband and wife kind of gaslighting narrative because you have these imbalances where you can have a man who is educated and very experienced in life who is basically quite stupid and hasn't really thought analytically about the world at all and then he's married to a woman who has not been given any kind of access to education or life experience but could be far more intelligent and better at like observing the world around her and then is like frustrated because she's controlled by this guy who's just like a dumbass. Yes. And her, like, she has to believe he's really special. Yeah. Because if he's not, then her life is a problem. Because, like, she brags about his very minor acting accomplishments to people 
in such a sad way because like, I mean to me it doesn't even feel like bragging it feels more like because she phrases it the same way every time yeah to me it's more just like oh she's like reeling it off because like she's getting that part of the conversation out of the way as efficiently as possible she can't say her husband's a famous actor she's like oh he's been in these two plays and some radio commercials yes but she wants it to sound impressive I think she kind of knows it's not like he yeah. hasn't made it, but she wants She's not to be proud, like, but like she wants to make it clear that he's an actor, but like we do have enough money to pay the rent, you know? <laughs> but like she watches one of his commercials near the beginning of the movie and is like super excited about it. Like again, she has to buy in. Cause if she doesn't, then what the fuck is she doing, right? And this is obviously also why she really needs the baby. Like, of course people want kids for all kinds of reasons, and like, you know, women with jobs also want babies. But the sort of like desperate need for that is to like give your life purpose because otherwise like what the fuck is she doing sitting around making shelves for the apartment and like waiting for him to come home from his audition where he hasn't gotten a job again and then we have the medical issues (laughs) yeah so as someone who has had like endless interactions with medical personnel and doctors for the past 10 plus years i just found all of the depiction of medicine and doctors in this movie so accurate (laughs) and obviously there's this specific like pregnancy angle which i can't personally relate to but i think the movie does a pretty incredible job of showing the like path that you go down as someone who is experiencing a lot of pain and you don't know why because for the as you said for the first like several months of her pregnancy she's experiencing this incredibly intense pain which we're kind of like yeah well you have a devil baby inside of you so like that doesn't seem good but i was i was also watching this and i was like i think this is like the first time I've seen a movie involving pregnancy that seems to have like a what I perceive as a realistic portrayal of pregnancy because like the amount of discomfort she's experiencing with her devil baby is the amount of discomfort I have witnessed from my friends who have been pregnant (laughs) well I mean we have read a lot about the production code and in earlier decades, you just straight up couldn't mention the word yeah. pregnancy. Like there was just You couldn't no. like show pregnancy. You couldn't explore that. It was kind of in the same category as pornography. They would have like educational sex ed vids that would be like X-rated and would just be like, here's how pregnancy works. So I don't know exactly like when the f- sort of like first movie that wasn't like that, that was about pregnancy gets through. But this is... Pr- close to that time like this would have been pretty groundbreaking just on the level of like it's about a pregnant lady right yeah i mean this film is 1968 yes which is the same year as in the heat of the night and the graduate and bonnie and clyde so this is like the beginning of new i mean the pills just kicking in yeah but i think the fact that she's having so much trouble with her pregnancy that can be ascribed to the fact that she's having a you know, non-traditional pregnancy, you might say, but also mirrors real symptoms that, like, real women have is definitely intentional. And she at first goes to this nice doctor that one of her female friends has recommended, and then these nefarious neighbors are like, oh, no, no, you have to go to our 
special doctor friend, Abe Saperstein, who's the one who's played by Ralph Bellamy. Like, he treats all the society women, which I just love this sort of, like, glimpse into, you know, old New York, right? So she goes to him and he's like, I only believe in natural things, which, again, I was like, nothing has changed. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's like you will, like, hear from, like, people in Victorian times who basically just sound like when the Kardashians are hawking some, like, fucking stupid pill thing it's like oh it's it's all salary and it's like yes we don't need more salary here <laughs> so he has the neighbor woman make her a special drink which we're to understand has like bad stuff in it it's part of what's making her so exhausted and look like corpse-like and is contributing to the pain and she keeps saying to him that she's in pain and he's like oh no no It'll be over soon. It's going to be fine. It's going to go away soon. And at the beginning of her pregnancy, she's losing weight. And there are people who are like, this seems bad. And she's like, no, no, the doctor says it's fine. It's totally normal. You're like, oh my God. And her her friends come over in this, at this party scene and are like, this is really bad. Like you don't look good and you need to go see a different doctor. But she just keeps going back to the same doctor who obviously is not helping her and is in fact causing her harm and um i just was like i mean i've never been in specifically a situation where i just like kept going to someone who was clearly bad but i think that sense of inertia can be really powerful where like you just feel awful and you don't have the energy to fix it and just like the lack of confidence attached to not being an expert and being presented yes. by someone who is very confidently presented as an expert. Right. Like he's like, oh no, you don't want to take pill supplements. Like that would be bad. You want to take these special drinks. And like, you know, for us as the outsiders, we're like, well, you definitely should take whatever pills this other doctor prescribed you. Like that's probably better. But if you're being told something very confidently by an older man who's being been presented to you as like the best obstetrician in New York... Like, you're going to listen to that guy, of course. And then she finally sort of figures out what's going on with this cult and runs away from home and manages to get in touch with the previous obstetrician she'd seen just the one time who's played by Charles Grodin. And she has these books about witchcraft and she's like, they're all witches. And like, look, here's this like story in this book it's so it's such a just upsetting scene because like she's made it to the point where like she fully believes that her husband and all of his neighbors and stuff are all witches and she's got all this evidence and she delivers the evidence and it's like it's fully just conspiracy theory like tin hat territory and you're just immediately as soon as this doctor starts being like oh i understand you're like oh no because like he is just being like so accepting <laughs> Well, what I think happens... Well, two things. Number one, the thing that reminded me of was, like, I've never got into a doctor and been like, I think the symptoms I'm having are caused by witchcraft. Like, that would be a bad situation. <laughs> but I think what it reminded me of was, like, going into a doctor's office and being like, I have all these symptoms and, like, I don't know what's going on, but I think it might be this disease that I've Googled. And, like, I think that I have it. And they're just like... It's probably fibromyalgia, whatever. Like, th that you start to get sort of conspiratorial about your own body, right? Because you're just like, well, it has to be something, and you try to figure it out. And especially if you have a lot of medical problems, they don't want to hear more than, like, two symptoms, right? And so if you start listing things off, it doesn't usually go well. And I think women especially, though not only women, I think get, often get very nervous in 
doctor's offices because of the sense of like authority and like just wanting to prove that like something is really wrong and this scene is obviously this extreme situation because it does have all this like conspiratorial stuff going on but I just like it just rang so true to me of the sort of like what happens when that power imbalance is there right and she can't do anything about it but what I think is happening on his end is he clearly thinks she's nuts but he says, I don't think these people are witches, but I think something really weird is going on because, like, there are a lot of weird people in New York City. And then she says the name of her obstetrician, and he's like, wait, your obstetrician is Abe Saperstein, who is the most famous and powerful obstetrician in New York City. And that's when he calls her husband and is like, please come pick your wife up. And, yeah. like, the network of men, right, that who are just, like... yeah protecting each other and then the final like 15 minutes of the movie move really fast because like she has the baby it's taken away from her her husband and his horrible little pals tell her the baby's dead but she can hear the baby crying through the wall and then she breaks through into the next door apartment where her old neighbors live and discovers the devil baby there in this like black bassinet with a upside down crucifix hanging over it and all these elderly satanists hanging out and they're just like well you're the mother of um the antichrist who is named adrian somewhat amusingly because adrian is of course a normal name (laughs) and that's and that's the end of the movie so yeah well and she initially like sees the baby and freaks out because yeah, she it's freaks out. And also throughout baby. this whole thing, she's holding a knife. And like, so there's this tension all the way through where you're like, is she gonna like stab the baby? And you kind of want her to stab the baby. Or like, yeah. I kind of wanted her to stab oh, yeah. the baby. And then one of these old Satanist guys is just like gently and paternally trying to persuade her that like, she's the mother and it's her duty to look after this baby. And the film kind of ends up with her accepting that like, she's gonna have to look after the Satan baby. Although she is really mean to her husband, which is satisfying, but it's still like she has lost. Like it ends on a very dark note. Yeah. She confronts him about it and he's basically like, well, it's like you just lost the baby. Like it's fine. Monster. He has like no understanding of like the trauma of that experience. Well, he's been living with her for the whole pregnancy. Like I'm speechless. I'm literally sitting here just like my jaws working. I just, it's... So horrifying. I do. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, this whole sequence is really amazing in the historical context of the satanic panic because this film comes like a decade beforehand. Like this is 1968. Obviously, this is a period where the concept of therapy is becoming very popularized, which is kind of the forerunner to the satanic panic because the initial wave of that is like this combination of there was this extremely popular book called Michelle Remembers, which is about this woman who allegedly found hidden memories in like a Freudian sense of being abused in like preschool by a satanic cult. I don't recall the specific details, but that kind of kicked off this idea of like, oh, there's this, all these conspiracies of like Satanists that are abusing children and then people are like losing their memories of it. And it kind of tied into like much older ideas from Christian mythos about satanic abuse and the idea that there is this Illuminati style order of powerful people who have got power through Satanism and like we now see that kind of stuff in like QAnon but all of that is absolutely blueprinted in Rosemary's Baby which comes like a decade before this absolutely obsessive 
fad in the 1980s where her child is being harvested by Satanists. The Satanists are this secret group of people who are like powerful, but they're behind the scenes and all this kind of stuff. And the film is also clearly very obsessed with the fact that they are old and she is young and fertile. Yes. Similar iconography in Polanski's Macbeth with the witches who are, there are many yeah. of them and they are old and naked, as I recall. Yeah, I've not I seen it, that but like, it's extremely reminiscent of Hereditary. Like yeah. Get Out, Hereditary is a film which like very much is influenced by this film very explicitly and that also has these sort of scenes of like these older nude demonic cultists sort of watching over this woman who's given birth to the satan baby yeah i mean one of the things i was thinking about not tied into this particular sort of strand of thinking but in terms of just like how this movie uses its literal satanic elements and plot devices as compared to something like Hereditary or something like Suspiria, actually either Suspiria film. I mean, I think the first Suspiria is great. I think the, like, we literally have, like, a witch in the building part is not my favorite part of that movie, but that's fine. (laughs) And I really did not like that Hereditary ended with a literal demon. It just felt kind of out of left field. Obviously, it's seeded throughout the film, but like, I just didn't think that it really fit with what that movie was doing. And I think that part of what works so well about this movie and doesn't in kind of any other movie that I can think of that uses a similar plot device is that it's just so consistently in the movie from the first moment. Like, we know what's going on from very early And it's treated completely matter-of-factly. Like, obviously, it is this heightened gothic thing. Like, there are a couple of scenes, especially near the end, where, like, Mia Farrow has some dialogue to deliver where I was just like, wow, on the page, that must have looked real rough. Because I mean, in the final scene, like, where she just has to yell, like, you're all Satanists. I'm like, okay, this now suddenly seems, like, really silly. But then there's, like, five minutes more of film that then boomerangs back again. You're like, okay, this no longer sounds silly. Yeah. I mean, it is really, it works really well that there's no visible supernatural element throughout yeah. the film. Like, there are parts where it's like, oh, she doesn't remember being raped, but that's because she's been drugged. Like, it all feels very much in the real world in the sense that you completely understand why she is finding it so hard to figure out what happened. And there's so much ambiguity, even though we not know what happened. Whereas there's a hell of a lot of movies that are in this same general mold. And the way they signal this story is like, oh, suddenly she's like levitating in her sleep. And it's just not that kind of film. Yeah. And I think, again, and this ties into the more emotional stuff too. Like, it totally can work to have sort of like twists about plot and relationships later in movies. I like to be surprised like anybody else. But I think in this particular case, the fact that we are in on it pretty much from the beginning, like, we know that John Cassavetes is up to no good from like minute 20 of the movie or something. Like it's it's apparent what he's doing. And so it's not about like we're not realizing with her. We we already know he's a piece of shit. We already know that this like satanist thing is going on. We don't have to be subtly accustomed to that idea, right? Like we we get it. And so it can focus more on her own emotional realizations as opposed to like 
us kind of being like, wait, there's a demon in this movie? <laughs> what? But yeah, as like a final sort of textual thing, I read an article about the sort of like Jewish elements of the movie that I thought was quite interesting because I wasn't thinking about that while watching. And then when I read it, I was like, oh, the number of people involved in the making of this movie behind and in front of the camera who were Jewish is like extremely high, which is interesting for a movie that relies so heavily on Catholic imagery. Yeah, because there's sort of mentions of the Pope quite a lot. And obviously it's like a very sort of Christian idea of Satan. And Mia Farrow in real life was like, she went to school, like a convent school. She had like a very Catholic upbringing. Yeah, and apparently the novel is like very Jewish. Like there is a ton of Jewish stuff in the novel that kind of gets stripped out of the movie, although a lot of it remains in a sort of subtextual way. So, like, obviously, the, the guy, um, obstetrician's name, Abe Saperstein, is about as Jewish a name as you can come up with. And this article, which is by Nathan Abrams in the foreword, points out that the neighbors, especially the Ruth Gordon character, are kind of, like, stereotypically, like, yeah, I Jewish was, neighbors. When I was watching, I was like, I just assumed they were, like, meant to be New York Jewish characters. Yes, but... Tony Curtis, who appears again in that, like, cameo on the telephone line, is Jewish, as is Charles Grodin. Like, I don't have, like, a thesis about this exactly. The article didn't quite either, because a lot of the characters who are doing monstrous things in the film either are Jewish or are coded Jewish. And then Mia Farrow, who's the victim, is this, like, tiny, wavish, blonde Catholic character, right? Which is kind of wild, because, like, uh, if this was from a different filmmaker, you'd be like, seems like it's really just straightforward anti-Semitism, but it's not. But that's clearly not what's going on. And again, like, I'm not really interested in hearing much from Roman Polanski, but that's like one thing I would be interested in, like, reading a quote on his intentions, because I feel like there has to be some intentionality behind this, but I'm not quite sure what it is. But the other thing that this article points out, which I was thinking about watching the film, is that, you know, if there is a kind of personal connection between Polanski's life and the movie, which I don't sense in like a huge way. I don't often sense that with his movies, which I think is part of why I can watch them and and like enjoy them without feeling too gross. It's that you know, like he was a Holocaust survivor. He grew up in the ghetto in Warsaw and had, I mean, just like a unbelievably horrific childhood. And um, he watched his mother get like dragged away from him and she died in a concentration camp. So this sense of him being sympathetic to Rosemary's situation makes sense in some way because a lot of his movies deal with this kind of like paranoia and this uh, and surveillance right which obviously ties back to that experience in the ghetto but yeah I mean my last thought on Polanski I think would just be that like a lot of the time you get art by abusers that's very insightful about abuse (laughs) it's a weird thing but I think it's kind of a strange mashup of like his own personal experience in, in that way. And then obviously this other horrific thing. But yeah, I just, I would be kind of curious about reading more about the Jewish stuff in this because I think it's sort of intriguing, but not fully worked out. Do you have any other thoughts on any of that? I do not have any thoughts on that topic. My one final thought in the film is just about the opposite of that in that it's deeply frivolous. Please. Uh- <laughs> 
it's about Mia Farrow's haircut, which is yes. iconic in this film. So like for the first half of the film, she has this sort of shoulder length blonde hair. And then she gets a very short haircut about partway through, which is sort of presented as rebellion. And her husband is repeatedly and very openly critical of this haircut. And it's just like, oh, you look like shit, you know? So obnoxious. <laughs> and this is like, this is like Mia Farrow's iconic haircut and was like a big part of the promo for this film. They literally name check Vidal Sassoon in the film like he did it and there was this whole publicity thing about him being like flown in from London for thousands of dollars to cut her hair and there's this photo shoot where she was like having her hair cut sitting in the middle of a boxing ring with like photographers all around her on all sides and then like about 10 years ago Mia Farrow who is active on social media tweeted People ask, Vidal Sassoon trimmed my inch-long hair as a publicity prank for Rosemary's Baby. Actually, I cut my own hair two years earlier. He was nice. R.I.P. And that was her R.I.P. note for Vidal Sassoon's death in 2012. So she was like dropping some truth on this fake publicity thing about her haircut. And also, I mean, I feel like Vidal Sassoon would just love that R.I.P. note from her. So I love it. That's a little detail there. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's so good. I mean, she's clearly wearing a wig for the first half of the movie. And then, I mean, it's perfectly fine wig, but it's obviously a wig. And then it comes off and you're like, oh, yes, there's the haircut. I mean, I did not notice it was a wig, which I do often notice in a lot of modern TV. So my hair standards are clearly lowered by the Bridgertons of the world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean... That's that is delightful. I did not know that, and that is we love a celebrity boomer tweet. When a celebrity boomer has a Twitter account and they tweet things like that, diamond. Yes. (laughs) All right. So that's that on Rosemary's Baby. If you're a horror fan and you haven't seen this, you should probably watch it because you'll probably be like, "Oh, all those movies that I love, I can see where they came from," and it's this film. And thank you again to Asante for requesting this movie. Um, As I said, I found it like such a... I really liked it when I saw it the first time, but I found it a totally richer experience on this watch because I just had a lot more context. Both as like a person who's lived in the world and as someone who now knows things about Hollywood that I did not then. Yeah. And I think I've seen about 500 more horror films since when I originally watched this, so... So next week we're going to swing into a different genre. Make Gabby a very happy by doing a Star Trek motion picture. I'm thrilled. Someone recommended Star Trek for The Voyage Home, directed by Leonard Nimoy, which is one of the best, if not the best, Star Trek films. We did an episode on The Wrath of Khan a while ago, and Morgan's not watched this film yet, to my knowledge. No. And if you've not seen this film, Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, you should, because it's incredibly fun. The concept is, it is the sequel to The Wrath of Khan and The Search for Spock. You don't need to watch The Search for Spock. I think you can tell from the title that they found Spock. (laughs) And after finding Spock... They finished the trilogy by going, how do we complete this narrative? Let's time travel back to 1980s San Francisco and do a comedy jape. And that's what they do. And it's great. <laughs> so. Can't wait. 
Can't wait. And Morgan will doubly like it, not just because it's a fun comedy jape, but also because it's a Cold War film. I mean, you you sold me. That's that's all I need is some Cold War shenanigans. We will also, if you've not seen this on Twitter already, um, by the time this goes up, we're recording this before the Oscars, but we will have recorded a bonus Patreon episode with our reactions to the show and the winners, etc. So that will be up on our Patreon if you would like to listen. If you would like to request a movie for us to watch, you can do that there as well. That is at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. We would also greatly appreciate ratings or reviews on iTunes or the podcast platform or of your choice. A five-star uh, review is especially helpful for the algorithm. And Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find my writing at The Daily Dot. Yes, uh, you can find my work at Bustle, and you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.